Without any further ado, it is my good pleasure to uh, once again introduce to you our beloved friend, Ben Green, who is going to come and share the word. Come on, Ben. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. We love you, too. Eric, I just want to say thank you to you and the elders. I'm sure a lot of other people appreciated Wednesday night's meeting. I know I did. And uh, as far as tonight or this this, this morning, man, got to get my timing right. See, trouble is I got a phone call from Eric about 730 last night, which is better than 330 in the morning because at 330 in the morning, you got to wonder. But at 730 at night. So I did what anybody would do. Any good Christian would do under the same circumstances. I finished brushing my kids' teeth, and I said, Eric, I'm in the middle of brushing my kids' teeth. i got to call you back. And he says, well, I wanted to talk about tomorrow at worship. I'm like, all right, I'll call you back. So I went upstairs, and I said to my oldest son, Caleb, I'm brushing his teeth, and my wife's nearby. And I said to Hallie, and I said to Caleb, I said, I think I'm preaching tomorrow maybe. Well, you think I should do this topic? And I kind of said something. Or you think I should do this? And they both said option number two, so this is what you're going to get today. <laughs> So I got up a little early this morning. I was working on it. This is what I do because, you know, I type, right? So I'm typing things up. Caleb sees it, and he starts saying, I think I could do a little better job, Dad. <laughs> so we're in for an adventure. <laughs> You're going to decide here. It happened while I was brushing teeth. My 7-year-old said it wasn't good enough. So we're going uh, to see what happens. I wanted to see how many of you remember... Like it might have been high school graduation, might have been a family conversation when you graduated high school, or maybe you get a promotion at work, or maybe it's when you graduated college. But there's a Bible verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, which tends to get quoted a lot. It's a great thing to put at the top of a book. It's a great thing to put at a high school graduation speech or college graduation or, or other big moments. You love Jeremiah 29, 11. It sort of creates this sense of optimism and hope. And when I got a lot older, I found out that, you know, in your 30s and in your 40s, when you have a career, when you're not at a high school graduation anymore, Jeremiah 29.7 seems a little more relevant. Jeremiah 29.8, Jeremiah 13, these other ones. But Jeremiah 29.11, I realized, happens in the middle of all this other kind of life experience. So today I want us to look at Jeremiah 29.1 through 14, so you can turn there. It's a privilege to be worshiping with you, and I know many of you are thinking about the Priscos and about their life. I met them this morning, so I have nothing to contribute to that. <laughs> so not putting you on the spot, but I was thinking, and what th this is how much I know of the Priscos. They used to live here and worship at this church, which I think all of you knew. Then they left and went to South Africa to serve the Lord. Now they're back, and I hear that your next step is Tennessee, right? So here, South Africa, Tennessee. And I have no idea what that feels like for you. I'm not putting you on the spot, not making any assumptions about you. But I think it, it models the way life can go where we're somewhere and we suddenly think we're going to be somewhere else. And maybe it's high school graduation or college graduation or a promotion at work or some other, some other summit, some other achievement in life. And you think, if I could get there, that'd be amazing. And then in other ways, you find out, no offense, you're just moving to Tennessee which is where I grew up, so I can say that in all fairness. So this is like, you find out you're moving to Tennessee, and it feels different, and life looks different. And you're thinking back, wondering, what about Jeremiah 29, 11? And in my life, I've had different jobs. Some of them seemed like, yeah, I'm so excited. And then it was like, I'm not so excited, you know? Sometimes that same job that I was so excited about didn't feel that way 90 days later, right? Didn't feel that way 10 days later sometimes. There it is, though. In all these seasons of life, Jeremiah 29 has something to say. So I'm going to turn there. 
you're going to hear Jeremiah 29, 11. You're probably going to know it, but it's the entire chapter that I think the Lord wants us, or the entire 14 verses that I think the Lord wants us to hear about. Verse 1 says, Now these are the words of the Lord, which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease." Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Let's pause in prayer as we continue to worship. Father, Son, and Spirit, your word is in our ears, but we would like it to be in our hearts. We need it in our habits. We need it in our, our words, our actions, our dreams, our desires. We need it. What you said to them then still matters to us now. And we're thankful and we're open-hearted toward you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Jeremiah 29, it's the opposite of high school superlatives. This is not most likely to be this or most likely to be that I looked up high school superlatives because I was curious what are people excited about or promising or predicting about each other and now it's things like most likely to write Harry Potter, most likely to be on a reality TV show, most likely to go viral on the internet. Those were not options for me when I finished high school. I came right before, I finished high school like right before all of that so I don't know what would be something to get excited about now but this letter is written to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. Verses one through three talk about them. I won't repeat them all, but there's elders, there's craftsmen, there's smiths, there's religious leaders. In other words, there's white collar, blue collar, young, old. There's all kinds of people caught up in this exile to Babylon. And Jeremiah is sending a message from Jerusalem to all of them saying, this is something God wants to tell you. 
And he sends this letter to all of these people, all of these kind of jobs, all these kind of skills, all these kind of talents. And he says to all of you, you're in the same boat. Some of you are more educated. Some of you are more religious. Some of you are more skilled. Some are white collar. Some are blue collar. Some are older. Some are younger. Some had a job in the temple. Some never went to temple. Maybe we don't know. He's speaking to all of them as equals. And he says, I want to tell you something today. And you probably know this, but when it talks about exile, just to be on the same page, these people had sinned against God in specific ways. He'd given them instructions because these are Jews. These are not just everybody on the planet. These are God's people. They were rescued out of Egypt. He gave them instructions like the Ten Commandments. He sent them prophets to teach them. And they just didn't listen and didn't listen and didn't listen and didn't listen all through the centuries. Finally, God says, I'm sending you into exile so that maybe you'll listen. And they end up in another country called Babylon. They're defeated militarily. They're taken as prisoners. All these people, the elite, the educated, the skilled, all these people who can make Babylon better are taken out of Jerusalem, taken out of the nation of Israel. They're all in exile. This is not a little slip up. That sounds really heavy. That can intimidate us. What's going to happen to me? I just want to let you know this is like a willful, stubborn pattern, not like one little slip up. I don't want to spend all morning on that, but I don't want you to leave thinking if I make one little slip up, I'm going to end up in some sort of Babylonian exile. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what God's word saying. That might be hard for you because you're probably also saying I live on Cape Cod. I mean, if I have to be exiled somewhere, like, you know, it could be a lot worse. So I uh, think it's a great spot on the planet to be. But sometimes we can feel still kind of like exiles. And it raises the question, how do we live in our Babylon? I want to start with verse three. It's not the main point, but I do want to start with verse three. I read this and I kind of chuckled because there's so many names in this, but it says, the letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. The reason I want to mention that is this, God's word, went to the king of Babylon, who was not sitting on his throne saying, I'd be interested to hear from the Jewish God. I'd be interested. I mean, why don't that Jewish God send me a message? Jeremiah writes this down for the exiles sent to them via the king. The reason that I mention this is if God wants to send you a message, he knows how to navigate your social situation. Jeremiah couldn't have like written this down, wrapped it up in like a clay bowl and pretended that it was grapes or olives or whatever, or just like gold and silver and, or dirt or something hidden and secretive and sneaky and been like, All right, don't let anybody see. No, we don't want the king of Babylon, no princes, no Babylonians get to see this. Keep it secret, right? He didn't do it. He said, I'm sending it to the king. The king's going to see this. He's going to know what I'm saying to you because God knows how to handle your obedience. God knows how to handle communication with you in the midst of whatever you find yourself in. All you have to do is act normal. You don't have to overcomplicate obeying God. When we first moved to Massachusetts two years ago, it's been three years ago now, we didn't know our neighbors. Life was chaotic for us. You remember three years ago? Summer 2020, pretty chaotic time. We move here, a little bit crazy. Six months after that, things were a little calmer, and it starts snowing outside, which as a guy from Tennessee is not something that you always encounter. I'd seen it before, but I mean, it wasn't like a you know, familiar thing. Well, outside, outside the house, I hear like the crunching of car tires on snow. And I look out the window and I see one of my neighbors throw a snow shovel out of his trunk into the side of our driveway, put his car in reverse, go backwards and leave. And I'm thinking, 
Well, that's an interesting thing. He didn't knock on the door. He didn't text me first. He didn't, you know, I didn't call him and say, do you have a snow shovel? He just knew my needs. He thought this guy from Tennessee probably doesn't know what to do, probably doesn't have a snow shovel. I got an extra. I'll go up to his house. I'll just throw it out. It's the thing I love about New England. It's conscientious, it's compassionate, but it's not conversational. You guys are worried right now. You guys should be worried. But it's, it really was like the opposite of the South. It's like there was no conversation. Here's the snow shovel. Nothing, nothing. He didn't even ring the doorbell. He's just like, I see him leaving, you know. But I've got the snow shovel, which is really kind of what I needed at that moment anyway. Now it's changed. Bob and I know each other. I've gone jogging with him. My kids play in his yard. They bring out lemonade. Like it looks totally different now. I say, don't you love how basic his will is? As Jeremiah 29, 11 starts talking, or 29 starts talking about some of these things. It's why verse four says, make room for daily life. Verse 4 says, the, the Lord of hosts, says, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, build houses, live in them. Bring your neighbors snow shovels, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Don't you love how practical it is? How simple it is? He knows that these exiles have never been here before. And he's not giving them some pie-in-the-sky vague dream like, go be amazing. You'll be incredible. You have such a bright future. He says, build houses because guess what? They didn't have them. Plant gardens because they didn't have them. They were exiles. They were new to Babylon. There's no grocery store. There's no like $2,500 welcome to town gift card that says, we got you covered to help you get settled in for a few months. They got to plant gardens. They got to build houses. They got to make relationships. They got to start their whole life over again. And God's very caring. He knows that they're not superhumans, and he knows it's not a short-term experience, so he says, hey, call the utility company, sign up for the garbage service, get, you know, get your Fios, you're going to need it, like, you're going to be here a while, make room for life, build houses, plant gardens, start families, be ordinary. Another thing he says to them is, be fruitful and multiply. At one level, as the text shows, it means get married, have kids, help your children get married, that type of thing. No, I'm not your pastor. I'm not friends with you. So I'm not going to wade into the whole debate about like standing up here saying have more kids or get married. That's, you know, have, have a good week. But what I will say is that we can read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And this idea of being fruitful and multiply appears all over the place. And it doesn't just mean like what happens within a family, but what happens in terms of sharing God's love and sharing the knowledge of God throughout the world with everybody that we meet. And then the family of God grows, right? Jesus is nearly leaving the earth and he says to his disciples, go and make disciples. And he meant wherever you are at that time. Go, make disciples, share the knowledge of me around the world. Because the fruit that God most wants is a world full of sons and daughters. He wants to multiply and be fruitful so that the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. And that happens through people. The verses also say in verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Jesus put that a little differently. He said, let's be salt. Let's be light. He told his disciples then, we can't like, unpack that entirely, that could be another sermon. But do to others as you would have them do to you. That's how Jesus put it. Love your neighbor. And if you're like me, 
sometimes I want to go to a sermon and I, I think, oh, man, I'm ready for some, some good, you know, hard-hitting sermons and long sermons and deep sermons and wide sermons and great stories and all these things. And this is, this is essentially sort of being summed up as like, some of you might be going, be ordinary? Like, I mean, that's it? Be, be, just kind of be ordinary? Just like build houses, plant, like, love, like, I get that. But we know who our God is. Tammy talked, she's not here, but if you watch the video on Facebook from Wednesday night, one of the things Tammy encouraged us with on Wednesday night was Jesus looking at his disciples and saying to them, who do you say that I am? And part of the reason that the exiles needed to just be sort of ordinary is because God is incredible. Part of the reason that they could just go, well, we're just settling in. We're just trying to get the garbage service delivered. I'm just on the phone for the 14th time, been on hold for two hours now, just trying to get settled in, just trying to get the electricity put in my name. I keep getting the P.O. box wrong, so here we are again. This is a good word to us. We're common people, mostly doing common things at seasons in our life that don't feel extraordinary, but we always have an unbelievable God who can do immeasurably more, Scripture says, than we can ask or imagine. 1 Kings chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read. 1 Kings chapter 20 records an interaction and a conversation. In, in chapter 20, it says, A man of God approached and spoke to the king of Israel. This is before the exile. Things are still better, so to speak, in Israel. A man of God approaches. He speaks to the king of Israel. He says, this is what the Lord says. Since the Aramaeans have said, the Lord is a God of mountains, but he is not a God of valleys. Therefore, the Lord will hand over to you this great multitude and you will know that he is the Lord. So there's two people groups here. There's some that say, well, that God, he can fight up in the mountains. But if we go to battle against Israel down in the valley, Israel will lose because their God doesn't have any power down in the valley. And God says, I'm about to show you who I really am, which is that I'm the God in the mountains, the God in the valley, the God anywhere I want to be. You are in a battle or you will be. And God wants to show himself to a world that doesn't think much of him. The God you believe in might be perceived by the world as, well, yeah, he's the, he's the God of the Christians, or he's the God of Sundays, or he's the God of this, or he's the God of that. And God's going, mm -mm -mm. no, 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 no. I'm the God of all power. I'm the God of all wisdom. I'm the God seven days a week. I'm the God online and offline. I'm the God for senior superlatives who are going to be something. And I'm the God for people who think it's over. They've slid down into nothingness. They're caught in the middle somewhere. They're just brushing their kids' teeth forever. They didn't get that promotion. A world can find out when God's people go out like workers in a harvest field, like lights, like we sang about this morning, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. When God's people go out like that, the world will find out there's a God who's way more than I thought he was. Let me tell you what else will take your ordinariness up a notch while you build your houses plant your produce, all these things. God says to pray in verse 7, and I just want to quickly give you four things. What kind of, what kind of pray? Because it's vague, and I can't answer the whole question, but what are God's people to pray about? Well, number one, Matthew 9, 38 says, pray for workers in the harvest field. Jesus says, a lot more people could know me if I could have a lot more workers. So he says, Jesus himself, pray for workers. First Timothy 2 says, pray for the people in authority, the leaders at a cultural level, especially kings. Verse number three, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6 is the third verse I wanted to mention. Pray for the saints. There's spiritual warfare happening. 
Eric talked about it this morning. The wicked one being thrown down is not that neighbor that we're sick and tired of. It's not that evil person that we just can't get over. We're just like, I wish that person would be thrown down. I'm so sick of them. It's really Satan. He's the wicked one. Pray that Christians, that saints would win the spiritual warfare in their life. Secondly, lastly, Make a, make a prayer list of every neighbor, acquaintance, coworker, whoever you are. Just make a prayer list of these people and pray for them by name. After you do that or while you do that, and you know what? You can go home and mow your grass. You can go home and mop your floor. You can eat dinner with your family, work a job, worship at church, use your gifts to impact the community. Be ordinary because God knows the plans that he has for you. Not be ordinary because I'm just saying go live a boring life. Be ordinary this is an apple. No, it's not the apple that used to sit here. I don't know. Is there any correlation between your, your leaving and the apple's gone? I don't know what happened to the apple. So somebody got hungry and ate a fake apple. This is a real apple, an honest-to-goodness real apple. It came out of my refrigerator this morning. What's inside this apple? Seeds. How many seeds? We don't have a clue. I'm borrowing this illustration, this idea from a guy named Rich Wilkerson Jr. I saw it on Instagram. I don't know Rich Wilkerson Jr. It's just the nature of Instagram. But I saw this apple, and he holds it up. We all think there's seeds in here. There's fruit. There's, like, fruit that I could take a bite out of. There's seeds in here. But Rich Wilkerson makes the point, there's not just seeds in here. There's an orchard in here. Because you plant, I think there's, like, four seeds in an apple, six, eight, whatever. You plant them. You know what you get? You get an orchard eventually. You plant enough seeds from this, you get more apples, you get more seeds, you get more seeds, you get more seeds. You got an orchard in there. It's not just that. And orchards take lots of care. They take tenderness and consistent engagement, a little bit of weeding, a little bit of watering. You take really good care of those, continual presence. It's all ordinary work, but all that ordinary work turns one apple into an orchard. And we need to answer another question. What are you not to do in Babylon? God's been talking to us about what to do, but what are you not to do in Babylon? This part's easy. I'm going to be quick with you. Verses 8 and 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is pretty easy, I say, just because the Lord says, don't believe people who deny God's promises. Don't believe people who distort God's teaching. If we know what God's word says, then we need to stick to it. It doesn't mean we won't meet people who don't twist it or get confused about it, but we don't listen to those people. We listen to what he says. Jeremiah is saying, there are people who will deceive you. Do not believe them. Do not listen to what they say. God says, I didn't send these prophets. He says in Jeremiah 23, these false prophets are liars. It's a strong word coming from God who said, thou shalt not lie. He's calling these people out. Watch out for people who teach an alternate perception, some other interpretation of reality other than what God says. There are things that God has made clear. There are things that we can just say that is absolutely the truth. Next, in verse 10, it says the people have got to spend 70 years in Babylon. What that means is that for some of these people, they're going to spend the rest of their earthly life in Babylon. For some of these people, it means they're going to spend their best years in Babylon. Some of these people 
are old enough that they knew Israel, they knew Jerusalem, they knew the first temple, they knew all the beauty of their culture, and they're never going to see it again. And some of them are young enough that it's going to feel like the only thing they know is Babylon. So what is the hope of going through that experience? What is the hope of being in that place? It's this. God says, I am coming. He says in verse 10, when 70 years have been completed, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place where the letter's coming from, Jerusalem. God is saying, I'm not there and you're not where I want you to be, but when this is done, I will bring you where I want you to be. I will be back with you. Now, I think the lesson of this, the reason why I bring this up is don't plan an escape. Don't try to get out of Babylon. In other words, he's saying to them, don't save up all your money. Don't plant your orchard and be secretly piling that money up under the mattress and saying, we're getting out of here as soon as we can. Because they got where they got because of their life decisions. And now they've got to let God work it out. And sometimes we get where we get because we've been really obedient and we've done everything right and things go wrong. And sometimes we get where we get and we don't know why we got where we get. It might be good, it might be bad. And other times we've done bad things. Wherever we are in the middle of all of that, I think the Lord is saying, don't run out of Babylon. Don't sneak out in the middle of the night. Don't try to, you know, these people could have said, I'm going to rise up through politics or I'm going to rise up through business and I'll become a diplomat back in Jerusalem and that'll be my ticket out of here. Or I'll start this great mail order business and I mean, we can have like Jerusalem and that'll be like our hub and our network. This is how I'm, he's saying, no, 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 no. Build houses right there in Babylon. Plant gardens right there in Babylon. Don't come up with some other plan. Don't get sneaky. Don't get creative. That doesn't go well. You can read the rest of the Bible. That doesn't go well. It's in the middle of exile and sad surroundings and people who might feel stuck that God says, I know the plans I have for you. It's not a high school speech, not to keep, you know, high school is a great thing to finish and a great thing, not to totally, you know, but these achievements in our life that feel like a platform that now have arrived in the future so bright. The future is so bright. See, I can get away with this because when I graduated college, the guy giving the speech must not have been paying attention. And he said, I want to give all of you a horrendous future. It's just time for a horrendous. And I was sitting there like, does he know what? I mean, did he? What? How do you say horrendous at a college? Like, I, I'm like, what word? I, for years, I've wondered, what word did he mean instead of horrendous? I, even driving here, I was like, hopeful, humble, hilarious. If you find out, you let me know. But your fate is intertwined with the people around you. Your surroundings are a combination of choices which involve some of your choices, but also involve some of God's will and some of the choices and the needs of the people around you. And God recognizes all of that. And he knows there could be sad surroundings. There can be discomfort. There can be disappointment. There can be all these feelings like, I don't fit, and this isn't right for me, and everything else. And God says... I'm moving you from idolatry against me to intimacy with me. So stay in Babylon. Build your houses. Plant your crops. Let me work this thing out. When the disciples had a question about the end of time and they're wondering, how are we going to separate evil from good? Jesus said, look, it's like there's two kinds of plants growing in a field, and we just got to let the whole thing get harvested. And then after the harvest, we can separate them out because you can't tell the difference. You can't see as a farmer what's going on, but let it be. We're just, and they're like, how are you going to let it grow up? Why are you letting evil things grow up next to good things? And Jesus is like, we're going to sort it out at the harvest. You're just going to have to wait. 
Don't try to get out of Babylon early. Now, what is God's plan for these exiles? You might be wondering. Well, here's the summary. He says it's a determined amount of time. In other words, it's not going to last forever. Secondly, it's a faithful visit from God that's right on time. He knows just when to work out all these things, and he's going to show up right on time. And lastly, he tells the exiles, I'm going to bring you back. In other words, I've got a good place for you to go, and I'm going to bring you back right there to that place. I want to share the last answer to your hope in your own sense of Babylon, your own experience. Seek the Lord as your process unfolds. As you journey through it, whatever it is, whether it's pain or pleasure, whether it's promises fulfilled or promises delayed, seek him. Don't seek stuff. Don't seek answers. Don't seek pleasure. Don't seek pain. I've seen both alternatives sometimes. People are like, no pain, no gain. I'm going to grow. You know, that looks great on Facebook, but that's really unpleasant, like, you know, the rest of the time. And I know other people who are like, this is miserable, man. I'm just going to make myself feel good. I'm just going to make myself feel good, as good as I can. And I get that. When I got off the phone with you, I ate a cookie, too. I forgot to mention that. So I understand. I did what, you know, I was very spiritual, right? I brushed my kids' teeth. I go downstairs. I eat a cookie. So I'm not saying I'm totally, but we got to seek him. We got to seek him. And he loves us even when we eat the cookies, and he loves us even when we don't have the answers, but, but seek him and let him work it out. Jesus said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And he must be a good carpenter because he's been taking a long time. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that you may be with me where I am. It's even better than what the exiles heard. They heard they're going back to Jerusalem. He says, a new city is coming down out of heaven. And I'm coming on the clouds. And you're going to meet me in the air. And we're going to live together forever. And in that place, there will be no crying and there will be no darkness. But we've got to wait for it. Because he knows the plans he has for us. That's what Jeremiah 29, 11 is saying. We wait in the darkness because God says, for I know the plans I have for you. We wait in the ordinary because he knows the plans he has for us. We maintain your hope because our hope because he's coming. This is true whether we're like superlatives at this whole exile game or not. Whether we're like succeeding and thrilled, our life in all seasons has this same hope. For I know the plans I have for you. For I know the plans I have for you. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray as one of the people at Living Hope Church here, one of the people that you've called by your grace and by your name. This is a week when we so appreciate the reassurance that you know the plans you have for us. That you know the plans you have for Eric and Tammy. You know the plans you have for us as a church. We appreciate the reminder that this is not the first time God's people have been in between one experience and another, in between one season and another. And that's not easy when it means leaving Cape Cod and moving somewhere else. It's not easy when it means that we got to a certain point in life and thought the future was bright and, and, and the, the dark clouds seem to appear at the edges, or it seems like the light is gone. But the light of the world has come, and that's our hope. And we know that your word says that in him was no darkness. 
no darkness in you. And in you is the light of life, a life that's indestructible, a life that's abundant. That's our hope. We have an indestructible hope this morning because we have a good shepherd who loves us. You came, you overcame, you went somewhere and you're coming back for us at the perfect time, at the perfect time. Help us be strong and wait. Help us navigate peace with the questions that we can't answer. Help us navigate. Some of us, it's going to be tough to say, really? Really? You want me to put up with that? You want me to live through that? You want me to tolerate that here in my own place where I feel like an exile, where I feel like a Babylon? You want us to go through that? I pray that we could still throw the snow shovel out of our trunk. Pray that we could still build a house or plant a garden or say yes and go to school or walk up to that stranger and be kind to them. Pray that we could go ahead and be the light of the world and let our light shine. We thank you, Lord, for being so merciful to us. We thank you for sending your spirit to us. We know that you can meet all of our needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. There's nothing against us that will overcome us because we are in you. And we thank you for that, Jesus. We praise you for that, Jesus. You are our living hope. Amen.